Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everybody. Well, my neighbors are right here on the front row, and so it's a little close. We, we, we have a street between us, so I'm not used to this much uh, closeness. Glad y'all are here. In addition to everything else we're going to do, we're going to have baptisms today across, yes, woo, across uh, all of our locations in each of our services. And last week at Refuge, uh, five people were baptized, and these are people, young, old, that are saying, you know what, I want to go public with my faith. And so if you're here and you've never experienced uh, Christian baptism, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a, it's a, uh, step of a Christian to follow God's and Jesus's commands to be baptized. It symbolizes dying with Christ and being raised into new life. So that's what we'll do at the end of the service. In between now and then, you're trying to figure out why the shovel. Uh, some of you have never used one of these before. Well, actually, we all have because we've all dug a hole for ourselves that we're unable to get out of. Haven't we? I mean, you didn't use a shovel, maybe, but you started digging, and before you knew it, you were a little in over your head. And your strategy at that point was not to cry for help, but to dig a little more, right? And before you know it, the hole's too big. And you're like, hey, anybody up there? But, you know, most of us don't want anybody to see us in the holes we dig. We might tell a small lie, and that lie just gets a little bigger, and then we have to tell a few more lies to make up for that, and a few more lies to make up for that. And before you know it, <coughs> excuse me, we're in a hole we can't get out of. And too, too infrequently do we say, hey, God, help me, help me out here. Uh, sometimes in, in the Christian life in particular, we'll be going down the wrong road and we'll feel like God is warning us, you know, let's not go down that road. And we're like, yeah, I got this. I can handle this. And, and we keep digging. And before you know it, uh, we're in over our heads. So today we're going to see in Genesis chapter 4 how sin, which is this distance that's now between humanity and God that's been brought about by Adam and Eve, which we looked at in chapter 3, how it spreads into the human race and, and, it, and it corrupts. And so we, we have from a Christian point of view an understanding of the evilness in the human heart. So if you're here today and you're unfamiliar with that, that's what, that's what Christians believe, that there's an evilness that's coming to the human heart because the first people chose to disobey God, and then that continued to play out. And we're going to see it played out today, and, and it's going to spread like cancer in the human body. And it's going to go from kind of the outside. Last week we saw that Eve's problem was she didn't obey God. Her actions betrayed her. Now we're going to see that sin goes from actions on the outside to motivation on the inside of the human heart. And we'll be faced with this reality. Our disbelief in God's goodness is going to inevitably affect our relationship with each other. Because Cain is not going to come to God in faith. He's going to come to God reluctantly. And when he's called out for that, he's going to then hate his brother and that hatred is going to lead to violence and murder 
So I don't know how you come today. You come expectant to participate and observe and support those being baptized. You come, maybe you haven't been here in a while. Some of you come and you know you're in a deep hole and you're trying to figure, figure a way out discreetly, maybe no one will notice. I'm here to say God already knows you're there and he's glad to help you out. It will require of you to put down the shovel and reach up and say, I need, I need you. And he'll be glad to help you. We also will touch on anger today. Anger is a, a topic you don't get talked about much in church because Christians are really poor at dealing with anger. And um, maybe you're here today and you're just so angry. One of the college students between the services said, you know, I was so angry last week. And I was like, well, okay, are you over it? Because <laughs> it feels like it's coming at me. And he was like, no, but God met me here today. So that's my prayer for us. And I'd like to just pause and pray for those that are being baptized, pray for us, those of us in a hole, those of us that are angry, those of us all of us who need to turn to God. Would you pray with me as we continue? Father God, we pause and we give you thanks in Jesus' name that we're not alone in this world or in the holes that we've dug for ourselves. If we can humble ourselves and cry out to you, you're more than, more than eager to reach out to us, to save us, to pull us out of the messes that we've created. And Lord, when it comes to anger, we pray, Father, that you would help us understand the sources of anger in our heart, that we might confess them, deal with them, acknowledge them, so that they don't fester, so that bitterness doesn't grow, so that it turns from a disgruntled attitude to a violent behavior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thirteen times Cain's name is mentioned in the first opening verses of chapter 4. The story is about Cain, the older brother. Um, and seven times Abel, his younger brother, is referred to him as Cain's brother. So it doesn't even say, you know, everything points to Cain. But there's also a story of the younger brother. It's not fully developed here. It is the fact that there is an Abel, a younger brother, who is going to, to be different. We have to go to the New Testament to see this. The New Testament writers uh, know the story, and they help us understand. And so, in contrast, the two stories, one is unrighteous, one has no proper standing with God, and the other one is righteous. But in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, which is a whole chapter dedicated to people who live by faith exemplary. You know, it's like the hall of fame of faith. And at the very beginning of that chapter is Abel. And here's what it says in chapter 11, verse 4 of Hebrews. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. That offering was his act of worship. Second sentence in the verse, by faith he was commended as righteous. He has a right standing before God. And it was shown when God spoke well of his offering. Third sentence, and by faith Abel still speaks even though he's dead. Now, these three verses say Abel is a man of faith, and we're going to, I mean, these three sentences, and we're going to use them to kind of outline and juxtapose the story of Cain and Abel. And here's our, the first part of the outline would be the first sentence of that verse. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. 
And this is a story of two brothers, and there are many in the Old Testament where brothers are at conflict, usually an older and a younger, and the younger's prevailing. And here we'll see that the older is um, out of step with God. God told Adam and Eve, I need you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was number one task. So chapter 4, verse 1 reads, the verses will be behind me. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to uh, his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the, the soil, the field, the ground. Two brothers. The first one, there's no uh, midwife, there's no doctor, there's no OB, there's nobody. There's, there's Adam, and he's not mentioned, so like a lot of husbands in delivery, he's useless. And Eve says, you know what? God has helped me, and I've been able to bring forth a, a, a man and she names him, they name him Cain, which uh, the Hebrew word means acquired, acquired life from the Lord. Then she has Abel, his name in Hebrew means breath or brevity. She's already aware that life is short. And, and here they go. They, they're both working. One is working as a shepherd, one is working as a farmer. Now, surely Adam and Eve said, hey, boys, as you grow up, and people lived a very long time, so there's no idea how old they are. Adam and Eve would have other children. And so they're out there working. And I'm sure they're being taught the importance of work. Adam may even be able to say to his boys, you know, before we ate of the fruit of the tree, work was just a constant act of worship to God. It's good. One's working with animals. And there's a lot of shepherds in the Old Testament. But they're really, you know, great standing. And the other one's working the soil. And then I'm also sure because where else do you learn it except from your family that, that they're teaching their boys how to worship hey this is how you worship you come to God this is how you can you can bring yourself to him you can bring your work to him and so that's what unfolds in verses 3 in the course of time it says in verse 3 Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord and Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock and the Lord looked, at, uh, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. In the course of time, again, no telling how old they were, how much time has passed, but they've grown up. Some will suggest, well, Abel brought, you know, animals, which was a, a mainstay in the Old Testament, sacrificing animals for sin. And so that's why he was looked on with favor. It doesn't really say that because grain offerings were just as acceptable by God throughout the Old Testament. But if we look a little closer, there's a couple things I'd like to point out. First is that it says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and then his offering. Here's what I need you to notice with that. God always looks first at the heart of the worshiper, then the gift they bring. Because the heart of the worshiper transforms the gift they bring. That's why Jesus, when he was at the temple and people were giving money to the temple, he stopped his disciples and he said, hey guys, look at her. Look at her. This, this widow who's taking her little money purse out and putting two cents in. She is giving more than everybody else because her heart's right and she's giving from her, her lack rather than her surplus. And man, that would be really pretty cool if that was our posture and then we look a little closer and we see that 
that Cain brought some of the first fruits, I mean, excuse me, some of the fruits, while Abel brought the fat and um, the first of his flock, the firstborn. He's bringing first fruits. Cain is not. Now, to bring first fruits requires faith. We have a satsuma tree that is trying to survive the summer of drought. So it's just sitting there, it's kind of sad, and we're waiting for the leaves to turn. I mean, excuse me, the fruit to turn. And when it does, you think, oh, I'm going to take the first ones and eat them. I'm not going to offer them to God because I'm not sure that there'll be any more. I mean, how many of them are going to ripen? How many of them are going to be edible? Essie Kate will eat all of them. <laughs> My neighbor, she loves them. Right? So to bring your first and your best, what does it mean? It means that you're trusting God. Your first and your best. And when you bring the first of your, of your flock, he's going to provide more. I'm going to trust him to provide more. I'm going to trust him with my best. Yeah. Too many Christians tend to bring what's left, not their best. So let me ask you, before COVID, you're outside, you're shoveling, you're digging your holes, you know, you get hot, you're with your neighbor, they have a drink, you don't. You might look at them before COVID and say, hey, can I have a sip? And they might say, as they just finish off their last little bit, sure, there's just a sip left. Do you want it? And most of us go, no, that's mostly saliva. I think I'll pass. And yet, when we come to God, that's often what we bring. Here's what I had left. Right? Hmm. So here's my, my question for you. Do you bring your first and best when you worship? When you worship in private, when you worship in public, when you come to churches, are you bringing your first, your best? Are you bringing your heart? It's a great question to ask. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with all your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. It's a great Indicator. Jesus would say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Abel's heart was all on the Lord. You can have my best. You can have my first. You can have it all. I'm just so glad I can come and worship you. But what about you? Do you bring your, your first and best when you worship, or do, or do you bring what's left? You just bring some. Jesus would drive this point home as he would teach throughout the New Testament. He would quote from one of the minor prophets, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says this, you know, God speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What he's saying there is, I want your heart. I want you to acknowledge me. Don't go through religious movements to impress me. I'm not impressed because I can see your heart. And that's what I'm interested in. How did Cain and Abel know that God accepted one and didn't accept the other? I don't know. It doesn't say. But they knew. Oh, they knew. Because Cain's response begins to immediately tell us where his heart is. His response to God saying, I'm not, gonna, not looking on him or his offering with favor, shows up pretty straightforward. So the second sentence in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says this, By faith, Abel was commended as righteous. You have right standing before me, God says, when God spoke well of his offering. Now before we, we look at the rest of Genesis, I want to reiterate the fact that Abel's coming and he is trusting God. He's put his best, he's put his, he's put his faith in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11, just a few verses down, says this, For without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is Abel. Abel's like, God, I'm all in. Like those that will be baptized today, he's saying, I'm all in. I'm bringing my best. I'm bringing my first. So he's commended as being in a right standing with God. But Cain, mm-mm, not so much. So what happens? The second half of verse 5 tells us, 6 and 7, some very powerful words. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Great question. Cain, why are you so angry? It says very angry. The Hebrew word there means he's burning hot. He's on fire. He is so furious, obviously, with God, maybe envious and jealous of his brother, though it doesn't really say. I want you to notice that God is coming to Cain and asking him not to confront him. He's just saying, hey, why are you so angry? It's a gentle way to say to him, hey, bud, why don't you put down the shovel? Okay? You came to worship. You brought this little pathetic gift, a few leftover sunflower seeds, a little bag of uneaten peanuts, whatever they ate. I don't know. Your heart's not in it. Why don't you just turn, put down the shovel and, and come to me? Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? It's written all over your face. You ever show up in class or work and you meet somebody and they just like, ooh, they, don't, they look pretty angry at somebody. Hopefully it's not me. Is everything okay? They say. This is what's going on with him. He is furious. God says, hey, look, if you do right, you'll be accepted. The Hebrew says, if you do well, uplifted. I think a better English translation is, hey, if you do right, it's going to show up on your face. Everything's going to be all right. Just just put down the shovel. Quit digging the holes. Just, Just look at me. Everything will be okay. But if you don't, let me just go ahead and warn you. Sin, first time it's mentioned in the Bible, is crouching at the door, at your door, like a wild animal. Like Peter would say, the devil is a, is a, is a roaring lion looking to see who he'd devour. Right outside the door, scratching, growling, trying to get into your life is sin. Don't open the door. It desires to conquer you, have you, destroy you. But you, you need to keep the door closed. Put down the shovel. Walk away now. Hmm. That's not what he does. The question reveals, hey, why are you so mad? It reveals what's wrong with his heart. I mean, just think about when you get mad when somebody asks you a question. You get all defensive. That's what's happening here. The motives have moved from the outside to the inside, and he is angry. A couple questions for you. What about you? Why are you angry? so many people as I said so many Christians they're not good angry people they're bad angry people for a couple reasons one I don't think they ever want to acknowledge that they're mad and so by the time we're all aware of it everybody's hurt by it you know what I mean 
Secondly, it feels so unchristian to be angry. Can't be mad. Yeah, you can. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Lots implied there. The old tra older translations would capture the imperative. Go ahead, be angry, but don't destroy yourself or others in your anger. You need to deal with it, and you need to deal with it now. So let me just share a few thoughts about anger, because we all deal with it. First and foremost, anger is a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion. You're angry really for another reason. Some people get scared. They get angry. Some people uh, feel bad about, you know, the imposition, and they get angry. So, the, you know, you've got to consider the source. Let me, let me use traffic in Baton Rouge, because it really makes me angry. You know, so when I get angry, if I've got nowhere to be, nowhere to go, end of the day, after the workout, I'm getting home and there's nothing pressing, and this guy, and we'll put him in a, I don't know, we'll put him in an electric car, yeah. Just a little wimpy car, it's really small, and he cuts me off in my self-righteous truck. If I'm just going home at the end of the day, I'm just like, whatever. However, if I'm trying to get somewhere, I get angry. You cut me off. Why? Because I'm going to be late. Well, so I don't like to be late. Why? Because I don't like to look like I'm not ready. Oh, so this is about you, not the person you called an idiot. Yes, it is. So you're angry, Kevin, because you're really worried about how you look. Yeah. So you're angry, Kevin, because you're really vain. Okay, enough already with that. It's a secondary emotion. So what do you do? You have to deal with it. The counselor once taught me, Kevin, follow the anger in. Look inside. Say, God, what, what's going on inside of me? Why am I so angry? Why am I so angry? Follow it in. Learn to self-examine. Learn to be self-aware. And if you don't know, just ask the Lord. He'll be glad to let you know. He'll do it gently. Well, maybe. It'll be clear. What I've discovered is there are two types of people that deal with anger. Those that explode and those that implode. Some of us grew up with exploders. They feel so much better after they rip your head off and they're finally able to just get it out and they think you should be okay being decapitated while they're doing fine. Now, everybody that's laughing knows that person. If you grew up with that person, then you become an imploder. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take my anger and I'm going to stuff it. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm just going to stuff it. Stuffed anger leads to depression. So maybe a different question is, why are you so volatile when you, when you are? Why are you so depressed? It could be that you're angry and you've never learned to deal with it. Cain, why are you so angry? What an opportunity. It's written all over your face, man. I don't know, Lord. What a great opportunity to put down the shovel. I'm mad. I'm mad at you. And a lot of us are mad at God. And if you follow it in far enough, I'm afraid you're going to get to this conclusion. He's God and you're not. And it just ticks you off. 
I don't, I don't know, Lord. I mean, Abel, 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 Abel. Listen to his name. He's Abel. I'm just so tired of him. Let's at least honest. Give yourself some time to cool down when you're angry. Everybody knows that lesson, right? Count to 10. Count to 20. Some of us need to count to 100. Some of us need to leave the building and count to 1,000. Some of us need to go to sleep. Even though it says, deal with it in this day, keep short accounts, but some of us need to cool down. Because if we don't, then we give the devil a toehold, and if he gets a toehold, he'll get a foothold, and when he gets a foothold, he's going to have a stronghold. Ephesians 4.27 warns us, deal with your anger as soon as you can, and don't give the devil a foothold. The next verse. And this is exactly what Cain did. Rather than respond and be honest and be real and be transparent, he just says, you know, I'm just, I'm furious. Doesn't answer. And so when we look in the New Testament and we look for Cain's name, we'll find it. We'll find it mentioned in passages that talk about how we're supposed to love one another. Because Jesus said this, the whole world is going to know that you're my disciples not by what Bible you read, not by what church you attend, not by how you vote, but how you have loved one for another. And this is where we can fail and fail miserably. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. This is the message you heard from the beginning. That's Jesus, the beginning. <coughs> Excuse me. You should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were right. They were righteous. And it made him mad and he didn't deal with the anger. And the anger took over and consumed him. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, let's go out into the field where I work. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. This is a horrible picture. Of, of, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a quick act of passion. I just lost my cool. It's not somebody defending their life against an enemy. It's a brother calculatedly murdering his own flesh and blood up close and personal. And I have to wonder, was a shovel involved? See, God had given Cain so many opportunities to put the shovel down. And he hasn't. He's digging. He's digging. He's digging. And what is he digging? He's digging his brother's grave. What else is he digging? He's digging his own grave. He just keeps digging. Our anger, left unchecked, moves naturally toward violence. Violence to ourselves or to others. And the same violence that causes us to slap, hit, punch, pull a trigger, it's all the same anger. Depending on what's in our hand, it can be much more damaging. And so when Jesus began to teach people, let me tell you what life is like in the kingdom. He didn't start with violence. He started with where violence starts. And that's in the heart of the human who is angry. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, this great sermon about the righteous life, the living right in the kingdom. What does it look like? You have heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, words hurt, sticks and stones may break my bones, and words can crush you, says to his brother or sister, raka, which means numbskull, buckethead, is answerable in the court. And anyone who says you fool is in danger of the fires of hell. These seem like idle words that don't mean anything, but they demonstrate what's going on in the heart of the person saying them. To call someone a, a, an empty-headed uh, numbskull in, in the biblical times was to, to show contempt. And this is what contempt says. I don't have enough emotion in me to hate you. I don't have any emotion for you. I don't even care that you are. That's contempt. I wish you were gone. I don't have any room for you at all. Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, which talks in depth about this, says that calling someone a fool in biblical times was a combination of freezing contempt with withering anger. It sees a person as stupidly perverse and rebellious against God. So these are words that demonstrate the hatred, the anger that's in somebody's life. And when it's left unchecked, it'll work its way out of your life as it did Cain's. And so we have to stop and we have to say, God, help me with my anger. So our third phrase from about Abel to help us understand, it says this, and by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. What a strange phrase. He still speaks even though he's dead. So let's go to Genesis and see what this could mean. Chapter 4, verse 9, it says this, Then the Lord said to Cain, He's still reaching out to him. Don't miss this. Where is your brother Abel? This is after he's dead. I don't know, Cain replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Man, another opportunity to say, I have blown it. I have dug a hole so deep I can hardly see the surface. I killed my brother. He doesn't do that. He shakes his fist at God. What, what am I? My brother's keeper? Give me a break. And little did he know, the ground was crying out. He never put down his shovel. His heart condition continues. It goes bad. He's dug a deep hole for himself and his brother. And it's crying from the ground. Verse 11. Now you're under a curse, God says to him, finally, here are the consequences. You're under a curse and you're driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be restless wanderer on the earth. You're banished. A vagabond has no home. A fugitive is running away from home. A stranger is, excuse me, running, running from home also. He doesn't have one. But a pilgrim, that's somebody that's running to home. And, and Cain has forfeited that. He's so uninterested in what God has to do and say, he's now wandering the earth. He's been banished. 
And it goes on to say in verse 13, Then Cain said to the Lord, Listen to how he responds. My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you, you're driving me from the land, and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me kills me. Cain never repents. Right? His words reveal only a little remorse and regret over the punishment, not what he did. He didn't go, oh my gosh, what have I done? We've all done really stupid things in our life. Some of them might be as bad as Cain's. He never does that. He's worried about the, the discipline. He has no guilt. He's not, he's not at all concerned about his character, only the punishment. Now we see fully what's in his heart. Anyone that Cain would meet would probably be a relative that would want to avenge their brother's death. And yet he's all concerned about that. Then God in mercy does one more thing. In verse 15, but the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone that kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. I have no idea what that is. So those of you who come up after me and say, hey, what was that? I don't know. I have no idea. A rash, a birth, a post-birth mark, a big tattoo, don't kill Cain, comma, God. I don't know what it says. <laughs> it just, I don't know. But Cain knew, and anybody that met Cain knew. Then the, and it says, so Cain went from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, which means wandering east of Eden. Very similar to the story of Adam and Eve. But with this, there's mercy. It would be totally appropriate for God to say, you know what? Give me your shovel. I'm going to bury you. And he doesn't. He, he kept pursuing him, and he pursued him. And then he said, okay, now you're going to wander. And no one is going to get even with you. It isn't a story about Abel. It's a story about Cain. It's a cautious story about weak worship and hot anger. It's a story of family feud. It's a story of sin entering into the heart of men and women that leads it to violence and destruction because that's what sin always does. It's a story about opening the door when we must not open it. And when we get to the New Testament, we learn more about Abel Abel's voice calling out. So at the end of the story, I want to go back to this. We would know if we, if there was a memorial service for Abel, they would say he was a man of faith. He always brought his best. He always brought his, his, his first fruits. Of Cain, they would have to say oh, he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's all these things. And then there's a little verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews, chapter 11, all about faith, chapter 12, how that plays out. And it's one of those verses in the New Testament that sounds really confusing at face value. Here's what it says. You have come to God, those people that have said, like those being baptized today, I want to follow Christ. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, you came to God, who is judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, following all those people that were listed in chapter 11, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. How do you mediate an agreement? 
Well, in the Old Testament, it was through the sacrifice of animals, the sprinkling of blood. In the New Testament, Jesus died. He sprinkled his blood, as it were, and that's the end of the story. And then it says in the latter part of verse 24, Jesus, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What was the word that Abel's blood spoke? It spoke vengeance. It spoke condemnation. I was innocent and my brother killed me and the blood screaming from the ground says, I need vengeance. I need condemnation. What does the blood of Jesus scream from the ground? It says, there's forgiveness and there's redemption. That's just beautiful. And so as we end here, I want you to shift and go, there is a great warning in chapter four. Sin is loose in this world and it seeks to devour you. And if you've been on a moral journey of self-improvement only to find yourself in a hole, a deep hole, I would say, put down the shovel. Turn to God. Bring your whole self to Him in worship. Offer your best, your first, your all to Him. And well, well, Kevin, I've been so wronged. I'm like Abel. Well, where do you go to resolve such a wrong? Where do you go for reconciliation? Where do you go for uh, hope? You have to go to Jesus. Oh, Kevin, I have done wrong, real wrong. I've hurt people. Where do I go? Same place. You have to go to Jesus. And you have to see in this story, God constantly pursuing. If you're here today, God may be pursuing you. Maybe he's whispered in your ear, put down the shovel. And you don't have to hold it up to him, okay? Let me help you. You don't have to do this. See, I'm still helping God help me. Just put it down. The Bible says his arm is not too short. I don't care how, big, how deep your hole is, how dark it is, how filthy it is. His arm can reach you. And this is good news. And this is what our middle schoolers responded to on their retreat. And this is why one was baptized a minute ago, first service. More will be baptized here. Because even in their young life, they're saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word that tells it to it straight. Not slant, not crooked. Doesn't soften it at all. Sin is dangerous. And it, des it desires to just master us. And I pray for those who need to stop and pause and just say, Lord, help me. If that's you, cry out to him right where you are. Whether you've been wronged or did the wrong. Lord, I pray for those that are struggling with their anger. Would you help them understand what's beneath the surface? A hot surface that's causing all the heat. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would learn to bring our first and best. We would give and give and give to you from our life so that you're honored and loved and our life would demonstrate you're totally worth it and you're totally trustworthy. 
So as we move to baptism, Lord, I pray that you would be honored in the obedient steps of the folks that come on this platform. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.